Thanks, Timothy, and good morning. It is good to see you. Thanks for being with us this morning. If you're here in person inside or if you're outside or if you're streaming online, we're really, really glad you're here. Uh, appreciate you deciding to worship with us. We realize you could be doing other things, but you've made the decision to be here, and uh, we're so glad that you did, and we want everybody to feel welcome. Uh, if you didn't know, Pastor Evan and his wife Katrina had baby number two. Uh, so if uh, you see them in the future, welcome them. Baby Isaiah was born, and uh, mom and baby are doing well, and uh, Evan is getting a much-needed leave while he's with his family. So you can pray for the Marberries. Uh, we are, uh, as a church, one week away from Holy Week. Uh, it, it is the week in which Christians celebrate the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Holy Week begins next Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday, where we will celebrate the triumphal entry into Jerusalem of Christ, and then it leads to Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus on that not-so-good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, the glorious resurrection. And so I hope you'll join us in this special and an important week in the life of the church. Not quite as important, but still important for me and for the church is that I'm nearing the beginning of my sabbatical. Uh, my uh, sabbatical will begin right after Easter Sunday. Uh, so Easter Sunday will be my last Sunday, and I'll be returning middle of August. Uh, a few letters have already been sent out uh, talking about my sabbatical, which was supposed to be last year, but uh, I delayed it because of COVID, because of so much unknown and wanting to be here with you uh, as the church in this time. And I'm so thankful for the leadership of our church affording me this much-needed time of renewal and rest. I've been in ministry for 21 years. We planted Christ Central eight years ago, and this will be my first ever sabbatical. Uh, and so uh, if sabbatical is new to you, if that, you don't even know what that means, uh, I encourage you to check out the letters we sent out, uh, give a little bit of explanation of what it is and why it's important. Uh, I would ask that you would pray for me and for my family as we're away, uh, we will definitely be praying for you and for this church. Uh, and I am excited about what God's going to do in my, my family's life and, and in the life of Christ Central uh, during this time. Well, this morning uh, is our last sermon in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, we have been uh, nine weeks together in this Old Testament book. And Daniel's been teaching us how to live faithfully in a strange land. Daniel is a Jew from Jerusalem who has been ripped from his hometown, forced to live in Babylon, a pagan empire. And this pagan empire is bearing down on Daniel with the attempt to force him to assimilate to its culture. Daniel chapters 1 through 6 are historical events in the life of Daniel. They show a young and an old Daniel living with faithful resistance in Babylon. Anything from his dietary habits to being willing to enter the lion's den. And in Daniel chapters 7 through 12, uh, there, it's about a few things, but mainly it's about the spiritual experiences that lay behind Daniel's public service. And so today we're going to look at one of these spiritual experiences in Daniel chapter 9, one of the most famous prayers that we have in the Bible. In earlier chapters, Daniel has showed us how he prays, but in chapter 9, Daniel shows us what he prays. And if I had to sum up what the book of Daniel teaches us about how to live faithfully in a strange land, it is this, that we must continually experience the blessing of knowing God. To live faithfully in exile, we must continually experience knowing God. 
Daniel is a biblical model of what it means to know God. Daniel is a man of prayer. There's an old saying that's been attributed to many different people, but it's this saying. What an individual is in secret, on his or her knees before God, that is what he or she is and no more. I'll say that again. What an individual is in secret, on his or her knees before God, that is what he or she is and no more. In other words, who we are in prayer is who we are really. We can portray ourselves in public one way. We may be even successful to disguise the truth about how and who we really are through our public persona, but our true self is revealed in prayer, in our prayers or in our lack of it. So let's turn in this last sermon on Daniel and listen in on this prayer of a, of a man who is experiencing the blessing of knowing God. I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able, and we're going to read Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 16 to 19. This is God's word to us this morning. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hesurus, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your, your, your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we need you to speak to us this morning. We're thankful for the, the prayer of Daniel. It's a prayer given to him by you, so it is from your spirit, inspired by you, words given to him so that we might hear you speak to us this morning. And I pray that that's exactly what would happen, that you, God, would speak, that we would have ears to hear, hearts tender to receive, and a willingness to live into our encounter with you and the truth of who you are. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing. You are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. You, God, are faithful to speak. Speak yet again to us this morning in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. I heard a, a great illustration one time from a pastor in Tennessee. It was a story about Arvis and the orange. Uh, Arvis was from the country. He was a little bit naive and innocent, a very delightful kid who had not yet been tainted by the world. Arvis was very poor, but he didn't know he was poor. 
Arvis's teacher had a special place for him in his heart. He always kind of looked after him because Arvis was often picked on at school by other boys. One boy named Tommy, it was the son of, a gross, of, the, of the town grocer, he, and Tommy brought an orange to school one day. And Tommy was showing off his orange to everyone and noticed that Arvis was entranced. Arvis had never seen an orange before. Tommy got a, a gleam in his eye and he called Arvis over. The teacher was watching everything unfold, but he couldn't step in. Tommy asked Arvis, have you ever had an orange? And Arvis said, no. Tommy asked, do you want to taste the orange? Arvis replied, yes. Tommy peeled the orange and gave Arvis a piece of the peel to eat. The teacher saw the whole thing and was determined to do something about it. So on Saturday, the teacher bought an orange, headed to Arvis's house. Arvis was startled to see his teacher. Uh, and the teacher asked, Arvis, do you want to taste an orange? And Arvis thought, not really. <laughs> but he trusted his teacher. And the teacher took the orange peeled it, and Arvis was about to eat the pill again, and the teacher blurted, stop, eat the flesh. And Arvis bit into this juicy orange, and his eyes went wide with amazement. And the teacher said, you now know how good an orange tastes. My experience in talking to people about prayer is that most of us view prayer like the peel of an orange. It looks good, maybe is good for us, but we don't want too much of it. Just tastes tolerable. Prayer's not sweet to us. We are peel eaters. On the other hand, Daniel, he knows sweet communion with God. In Christ Central, I want us to be a people who experience sweet communion with God consistently. Not people who just grin and bear it in prayer, but a people who delight in knowing God in prayer. There are three things in Daniel's prayer that I want to point out this morning. Prayer's foundation, prayer is fostered in relationship, and lastly, prayer's focus. So let's look at prayer's foundation. Look at verses 2 to 3. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed. Daniel turns his face to the Lord in prayer. Did you catch what inspired Daniel to pray? Daniel, a prophet of God, is reading another prophet of God, Jeremiah. Daniel is doing his personal Bible study. He's reading Jeremiah. We know that he's probably reading Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29 because Daniel does some quick math and he realizes that Jeremiah's prophecy that the 70 years of punishment against Jerusalem are almost up. So Daniel prays. Daniel's prayer springs from his reading of God's word. He is trying to make sense of his life in Babylon. I can imagine Daniel asking, why all of this suffering? God, how long will we be here? And what he finds is that God's word addresses his situation. And Daniel's not only inspired to pray because of God's word, his prayer is saturated by God's word. 
In verse 4, Daniel mentions God's covenant and commandments. Verse 6, the prophet's words. Verses 10 through 11, God's law. Verse 12, God's word. And in the Bible, Daniel's not the only one we see praying from the Bible. The Apostle Paul's letters and prayers in the New Testament are infused with Bible quotes and references. Jesus himself prays scripture. The first aspect of prayer's foundation, why we pray, is that God's word moves us to pray and gives us words to pray for each of our situations. The second aspect of prayer's foundation is knowing our need. Not just that God speaks, but knowing our need. It is the knowledge of need that leads Daniel to pray. The knowledge of his own sin, the knowledge of Israel's corporate sin. Verse four, I prayed to the Lord and made confession. Verse five, we have sinned and done wrong. Verse eight, we have sinned against you, Lord. Daniel gets the depth of sin, that the heart of sin is despising God. We've sinned against you, Lord, which means that one drink too many, that click on the internet, that sin of being dishonest, the sin of cheating on the test or your taxes, the the sin of gossip. It is a personal statement toward God. God, you are not enough. We sin against God. And we might be driven to pray for a moment by the consequences of our sin, but what continually drives us to pray is the knowledge that we thought God was not enough and we chased after something else and we've now realized that it does not satisfy and that our greatest need is God himself. The last aspect of prayer's foundation that I want to mention is not only that God speaks and the knowledge of our need, but God acts. God acts. Look at verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Daniel knows that God uses our prayers to accomplish his will. Verse 4, he starts his prayer by saying, God, the great and awesome God. Daniel knows God controls all things, but the sovereignty of God does not negate our responsibility to pray by which God has ordained to be the means of accomplishing his sovereign purposes in his world. God employs means to achieve his ends. In Matthew's gospel, in the New Testament, chapter 28, Jesus, talking to his disciples, says, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so all of you disciples can just sit back and relax. You know that passage, Jesus says, no, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. God uses us to accomplish his will on earth. Listen to Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 to 5. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Revelation 8 tells us that the supplications 
offered before the heavenly throne becomes the instrument of God's activity on the earth. We pray because God is moved to act by our prayers. Daniel prayed for the restoration of Jerusalem. We pray for God's blessing to flow upon us and through us to our city and to the world. We pray that God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven because God uses our prayers to achieve his ends. God speaks our need, God God acts. It's prayer's foundation. Second thing I want to point out this morning is that prayer is fostered in relationship. There is relational language all over this prayer. It's personal. It's very personal. It's direct. It's earnest, suggestive of a real connection. Daniel begins the prayer in verse 4, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Covenant. That is a relational word. And in this relationship, Daniel experiences guilt for his sin. Verse 7, shame for his sin. But in verse 23 of Daniel 9, Gabriel responds to Daniel after this prayer and tells him, Daniel, you are greatly loved by God. Daniel is greatly loved by God. He receives mercy from God. He is forgiven by God. See, prayer gives us what we need most, experience and relationship with a God who loves us deeply. George MacDonald was a 19th century Scottish poet, author, minister, and MacDonald wrote this, if God loves us so much and knows everything we need before we ask, why must we pray? He writes, God knows prayer is the thing we need first and most because the main object in prayer is the supplying of our great need, our endless need, the need of God himself. And then he asks, what if the good of all our smaller and lower needs lies in this, that they help drive us to God? Friendship with God is the one need of the soul beyond beyond all other needs. And prayer is the beginning of of that friendship. All of our wants, all of our longings, all of our needs, all of our desires are for the sake of our coming into communion with God. Show, popular show now, This Is Us. It portrays Randall, the adopted black son in a white family. And I think it's halfway through season one that Randall uh, finds out who his biological father is, a man named William, uh, who is diagnosed with stage four cancer. And some of my favorite episodes, and this is us, is when Randall's just getting to know William. Randall is this full-grown man, but he acts like a little child with William. He, and he invites William to come and, and live in his home. And Randall is filled with amazement and wonder as he learns new things about his father every day. And William is overcome with joy that he gets to be in this intimate relationship with his son. That's just a great picture of what the offer God gives to us every day as Christians. To allow God the Father to take up residence in our hearts and in our souls. And our God is eternal and unchanging in his being, in his wisdom, in his justice, in his holiness, in his goodness, in his truth, in his beauty, in his grace, and in his love. And this is the God who longs to take up residence in our hearts by his spirit wants to be in communion and relationship with us. Prayer is us inviting God in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
prayer saying, come in, God. Take up residence in my life by which we then can be filled with amazement and wonder as we learn more and more about our Heavenly Father who loves us deeply. The last thing that I want to say about prayer from Daniel's prayer is not just prayer's foundation, not just prayer is fostered in relationship, but prayer's focus. Look at the last three verses that I read, verses 16 through 19, the, the end of the prayer. Daniel prays, God, listen for your own sake. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary. Verse 18, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. Verse 19, delay not for your own sake, for your city, your people are called by your name. Daniel's ultimate motive in prayer is God's glory. Listen to me, if the aim and the focus of our prayers are solely on our circumstances, we will will be tossed about by the winds of this world because life in a broken world is hard. And all of us will get hurt and all of us will experience sadness. But if our ultimate hope is the glory of God, come what may, sickness, death, loss, sadness, betrayal, we will remain anchored and faithful Because God takes the broken things of this world and he uses them for our good and for his glory. God takes Babylonian exile and he uses it to turn the hearts of Israel back into relationship with God. And he will restore Jerusalem. God will be glorified in the hearts of his people and in his great city. The gospel of Christianity is the good news of God using what appeared to be awful and turning it into the instrument of salvation for the whole world. That God would be glorified through the crucifixion of his beloved son. That Jesus would be spit upon, mocked, betrayed, crucified, and he would experience all of that to turn our hearts back to him. For it is through Jesus that we experience the forgiveness of our sins. It is through Jesus that our shame is dealt with. It is through Jesus that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God and we are greatly loved. And it is Jesus who is the head of his church, the new city, the new Jerusalem that is being built and restored on earth as it is in heaven. And let's make no mistake about it. God's chief end of all things is not just to change our circumstances, though he does that often for our good and for his glory. The the chief end of all things is the glory of God in all things the earth. And God is glorified most when his people take great delight in knowing him. Prayer. It's prayer. I heard someone use the following situations or questions to talk about prayer. I thought these were good. Sailing, rowing, drifting, sinking. Let me ask you, when you think about your prayer life, are you sailing? The wind, uh, the person who's sailing, it feels like the wind's at your back. God is real to your heart. You feel his love. When When you read the Bible, it pops. When you pray, it feels like you're communing with a real person. You sense people around you being impacted by your relationship with God. Or are you rowing? You're doing the right things, habits of prayer, you're reading the Bible, but more often than not, God feels distant. You intellectually know God and and his love for you, but you rarely feel it. If you're this person, you've not given in to self-pity or or started to assume that you know better than God, 
You just keep rowing, and you're waiting, and you're hoping for the wind to get behind you. Or are you drifting? The person who is drifting experiences all the conditions of one rowing, spiritual dryness, difficulties in this life, but they've let go, and they're just drifting. Maybe you started to feel sorry for yourself. Perhaps you, you've drifted into self-indulgent behaviors that, that numb the pain. You're drinking too much. You're playing too many video games. You're shopping too much. Are you drifting? Or are you sinking? This is a boat that has drifted so far, there is no trace of relationship with God. The numbness of drifting has become a hardness rooted in resentment and self-pity. It's worth asking for all of us where we are this morning in regards to prayer with God, in relationship to God. God longs to be in communion with us, for us to experience him speaking to us, for us to experience our need of him, and for us to experience him acting through our prayers in this world. Are you eating the peel? Or are you tasting the sweetness of relationship with the Father that greatly loves you? The delight of knowing the eternal God. For when we do, we will be a people of prevailing prayer. And God, our Lord, will be glorified in and through us. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you make us a people that that experience, give us the gift, the sweetness of fellowship and relationship, God. Lord, we want to experience the, the wind of the Spirit blowing upon us so that we know you're real and we know your love. And, and Lord, we pray and we long for that. And, and even as I pray that I know <laughs> there are so many people worshiping this morning that feel like they're rowing or they're drifting or they're sinking. So would you, by your grace, draw us yet again as you have spoken in your word to us this morning. As we come to the table to hear you speak and to experience our need and to taste your goodness, Lord, would you move us to be a people of prayer, the delight in knowing you so that you're glorified in our lives individually and you're glorified in Christ Central Church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.